Hey all, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank. I'm Steve Lee, I'm the head of Veritas Catholic Network, and I'm happy to be here again with Bishop Frank Caggiano. It's great to be with you again, Steve. Thanks, Excellency. So we have a lot on the agenda for today. We mm-hmm. want to continue walking through and working through Lent. Uh, so today we'll talk about fasting and almsgiving, and then later we'll talk about the directives you recently gave to the diocese about the coronavirus, and then also about Catholic Relief Services. Yeah, well, that's an agenda. <laughs> There's much going on. Right. Just a couple of things today. First, I just want—I need to—I want to say our show is brought to you by the Knights of Columbus Museum. Have you been there yet, Excellency? I have not. Yeah. I'm hoping to go in a couple of weeks. It's great. It's a great museum and so easy to get to. Yeah, and from here, it's yeah, of course, it's yeah. in New Haven. It's it's a stone's throw. Yes. So everyone should mark your calendars for this Sunday, March 15 at 2 p.m. when Father Paul Lanou, a priest of the Ukrainian Catholic Diocese of Stamford, will give a free presentation on the history and practice of pisanki, the colorfully and ornately painted eggs we often see during the Easter season. The Knights of Columbus Museum is easy to get to at 1 State Street in New Haven, right off exit 47 on I-95. The talk is this Sunday, March 15 at 2 p.m. and admission and parking are free. To learn more, visit KOFC Museum on the web or social media. So, you know, it's fun. When, when, when I go with my family, we like to go and see the museum for a couple hours. Then we'll park underneath the mm-hmm. parking garage and we'll leave the car there and then walk around the neighborhood and go get something to eat. That's oh, great. So it's a nice, oh, nice afternoon. Great. Actually, and the Knights of Columbus do tremendous work for the yes. life of the church. Yes. They deserve our support. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. Excellency. So... We have the three keys, as you pointed out, to Lent. Mm-hmm. We have um, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And so we already talked about prayer last week. Today, please help us get started with fasting. How does fasting help us spiritually? Mm-hmm. It's an ancient practice that is not just a Christian practice. So one would ask, what on the basic human level is being provoked by the deliberate absence of food or drink in one's life. The bottom line is, it is a privation, and it is done for a greater good. So there's no value in starving for the sake of starving. You do it for a higher good. And we as Christians know what that higher good is. We want to translate the hunger of the body into a hunger of the soul. So we do not eat on certain days, like Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, and we abstain from meat on the Fridays of Lent to remind us that the real hunger of our hearts is not to fill our stomach, it is to fill our soul with the gift of grace. And many times in a world like ours, where we are satiated in so many different ways, that we need to purposely become hungry to remind ourselves of what's really important and what our hearts really long for. So one of the things I would suggest is that we fast from more than food. One great place to fast is from social media, yeah, which has become a place where people are satiated to the point of almost becoming too full. Right. And you can lose perspective, right? Focus, energy diverted in ways that perhaps are not very well used. 
So we make ourselves purposefully hungry so that we can focus ourselves on that which really matters. Yeah, yeah. There's another level too of fasting, and that is that which you do not consume should be offered to those who do not have. So if you don't eat this meal, whatever this meal is, one could quantify what that cost and put it towards another purpose. Again, a greater good than filling my stomach, for example. Or if it's social media or anything else, or, or even shopping, to fast from shopping for things we don't need can accumulate a significant amount of resources that can be shared with those who are in need. So there's a dual purpose there. The hunger is for two purposes, for to feed our spiritual hunger, so we refocus on what's important, and the actual materials, material goods that we accumulate to give to those who do not have. Yeah, especially during Lent, it feels like we should be doing this um, all year round. Absolutely. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, Lent is a concentrated time to bring all three of the disciplines, so prayer, fasting, and almsgiving together. But it should be the natural consequence of every Christian's life. So many religions do it. We do it in the service of the Lord Jesus, who, for whom we should hunger every moment of every day and long for his life in us, to fill us in the ways that really matter. So for example... If my heart is broken because someone has betrayed me, I could eat till the cows come home, but I'm still hungry. Hmm. Only Christ can fill that hunger. Right. In fact, we can overeat simply to avoid what we're really hungering for. So I would suggest, as you said rightly, it's a part of our ordinary life as Christians, but in Lent, it certainly takes on a very specific penitential character. Yeah. And even uh, the requirements during Lent are so, they feel <laughs> minimal. I mean, I remember in the 90s watching Hakeem Olajuwon play in the NBA playoffs and, you know, during Ramadan. And he had fasted, I think, even from water all mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. And he's playing, you know, and I don't know. I guess I kind of feel like uh, we could be stronger about it, right? We could, right. I, we have minimal requirements, mm -hmm. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Give me some guidance. Well, with there's two ways to approach life. There's even two types of law. There's Anglo-Saxon law and there's Roman law. And what's the difference? Roman law, which is what canon law is based on, is articulates the ideal, the maximum, the best, when circumstances are as they should be. Anglo-Saxon law does just the opposite. It creates the minimum under which you should not slide. Right. And life can be seen in both ways. So canon law articulates the ideal and then gives us all the ways we can deal with those circumstances when we don't live the ideal. And Anglo-Saxon law tells us the minimum, but doesn't excuse us for doing more than the minimum. So as you describe Lent, it's almost that sense that it gives you the threshold. That's the minimum, but doesn't absolve you for doing more than that, what you are capable of doing. And you may be capable of doing more than I, but I am obliged to do the maximum I can do. Right. As you are obliged to do the maximum you can, whatever that maximum is. And therefore, the most important days of Lent are not actually in Lent. They're the days before Lent, where we should really give thought 
as to how can we maximize this great privilege season we have, which is to enter into the desert, become hungry with the Lord, to feed that hunger which only He can give us. And quite frankly, if someone's listening to us now and said, well, I didn't do that, well, then do it now because we still have four plus weeks to go. It's not We're not even late. at the head. It's not too late to do it now and start the rest of Lent in yeah. that vein. Yeah. And I assume you're going to say in the same way, if you started, you mess up, just dust yourself off. and Right. Because the purpose of Lent is not to have a grade on a report card <laughs> that I, did, I accomplished everything. Because that in and of itself could be an act of self-righteousness. Really, Lent is all about, I'm going to use this word, being humbled before the Lord, almost to the point of humiliation before the Lord. If we stand naked in our sinfulness, it's humiliating to do that. But that's not a bad thing. Because what we'll discover is the Lord will forgive us, have mercy on us, and loves us. So it's a liberating moment. So even in the falling in the disciplines we've chosen to do, itself can be an act of grace if we pick ourselves up, acknowledge our weakness, ask for the grace, and keep going. Yeah. Because right? the, the, the purpose of Lent is not to get 100%. The purpose of Lent is get to heaven. Yes. Right? Through the Paschal mystery. Yeah. So I'm not absolving people to say it doesn't matter, but if you really honestly tried and failed for, for whatever reason, then it's time to start again. Yeah. And uh, and again, it's that difference between the, the Roman law and the yeah, Anglo-Saxon the, the law. the two ways of approaching life. Yeah. Right. And we're very comfortable with, give me the minimum and I'll try to live that. Well, that only in the end leads to mediocrity, if that's all that you do. The Lord did not ask us to get through life by the skin of our teeth. Yeah. The Lord asked us to get through life seeking greatness in his life, to become heroic martyrs of faith. So the minimum is just like the starting point, but we need to do more than that. But my more is different from your more, Steve, yes. or anyone else listening to us. And that is why it's very dangerous and it becomes an exercise in self-righteousness where I could compare what I do to you and think I am a better Christian. Well, perhaps that's true, perhaps that's not true, because perhaps I'm, what I'm capable of is 10 times more than I've, what I've actually done. And I'm gonna be held accountable for what the Lord asks of me, not what I necessarily desire to give to him in my comfort zone. Yeah. So there's too much of that cross comparison going on that's dividing us. Our eyes have to be fixed on Jesus. And my personal invitation to strive for holiness in my life and give my all to him as much as I am humanly capable with the power of his grace. Yeah. That is my focus. Yeah. As it should be for every Christian. Right. And so when you when you put it like that, so then it makes sense that the church says, okay, here's the here, here's the minimum. At least do this. Mm -hmm. And then it's upon us to mm -hmm. take it to our maximum, as mm -hmm. you're saying. And once we leave Lent and we're in the Paschal Mystery, and we're in the season of Easter, then the days after Easter are as important as the days before Lent. Because I would humbly suggest that having gone through this exercise, then what about for the rest of our life? Mm -hmm. 
until we go through this period a year from now. What are the disciplines we're going to embrace to allow me to continue to hunger for the Lord's life and to reorient it and prioritize it in such a way that I am not just doing the minimum, but I am striving for the maximum in service and love of the Lord Jesus. Yeah. So yeah. what am I gonna do for the Easter season? And what will I do for the summer? And what we call ordinary time, which is in some ways a misnomer because it's all extraordinary in Jesus Christ. Right. right? <laughs> so, um, so that's something I think we all have to think about. Yeah. Yeah, the the fasting as you described earlier, you know, and I know um I know a lot of families who abstain from meat on Fridays throughout the year, not just during Lent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a great practice. And I know many who have purposely intended to do acts of charity on a regular basis every week, either soup kitchen or working with young people or serving their parish. And that is equally important. And it doesn't happen unless you sit down, reflect, and intend it, and hold yourself responsible for it. Otherwise, we all get lazy in some way, shape, or form. It's part of concup- it's part of original sin. It's part of the effects of original sin. It's part of human nature. Yeah. But but we can't give ourselves a pass. Yeah. Right. So that's we we'll have time to get to that when we get to Easter and the great salvation that comes to us in Jesus Christ, but then what do we do the rest of the time? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago too, but as I'm listening to you again, I'm thinking about, you know, you mentioned going out to soup kitchens and doing mm-hmm. acts of charity, but also that starts at the home too. Mother Teresa said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. Mm-hmm. So it starts with patience with your spouse and your kids and, doing, as I always, I don't do enough of, but, you know, I ask my kids to do a chore. They leave it half done. You know, I, why can't I just go over and finish it for them without giving them a hard time about it? That's an act of charity. Right. On the other hand, it could also be an equal act of charity to discipline them to do it because it is for their own good True. that they master the art of discipline in their life. Yes. And again, you need to intuit what the proper response is in every given situation, because it could be different from day to day. Right. Love gives you that intuition, that transcends your ability to even reason it. Your heart tells you what the proper response is. If you address it in a very calm and deliberate manner, not reactive, and of course I'm Italian, so I love to react (laughs) at everything. Right. But take a step back, deep breath, not react and consider what the proper response is for the good of the individual. Yeah, absolutely. So life is a one, in many ways, it's a great exercise of being aware, deliberating, and acting in grace in a proper way. And we live in a world that tells us just to do the opposite, especially on social media, which has become militarized. So it's, it's almost become venomous in many ways. People just say the most awful things yes. and then walk away and they're not being conscious of it. They're not being deliberate. It's, it's, it's inflicting harm that has huge consequences. If that's the world and the model the world's giving us as Christians, we have to reject it. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're gonna have to talk about social media on a future episode because Oh, I have I have definitive opinions on that. <laughs> <laughs> I just make sure my kids tune into that one. 
So, all right, let's let's talk about almsgiving then. Mm. So it's uh, most of us know it as you know giving to the poor, but maybe you could begin at the beginning and you know kind of broaden our understanding of almsgiving and and why we should do this, especially during Lent. Saint John Chrysostom, in one of his famous homilies, that's in the Office of Readings, actually. Um, addressing his congregation, said, God does not seek golden chalices, he seeks golden hearts. And a heart becomes golden when it is emptied so that it can be polished by God's grace. And how do you polish a heart? You polish a heart by the very acts of loving God in and through our neighbor. So let's consider for a moment. How many times have you and I said, I love God, but what does that really mean? If the Christian definition of love is to will someone's good, to do that which is good for that person, allow me to ask you, how do you will God's good since he is the source of all good? Hmm. What is it that you and I can give God that he does not already have? What is it that we can add to his majesty or power or glory? Nothing. The answer is nothing. <laughs> right, yes. But he allows us he made in his image and likeness, to do what he did. That is, he loves by going outside of himself. In the perfect trinity he forms, he goes outside of and creates all things, including us. So we do the same. So the root of almsgiving is the, is the concrete way we can love God, is by attending to the needs of our sisters and brothers in need. And we do it not because it's just simply a way of righting social inequality. It's not an act of justice, it's an act of love. It is to will their good. So almsgiving can take many forms. It can be monetary, it could be resources, it could be service, it could be presence. It is to give of oneself so that someone else may have that which they do not have and need essentially for their good. I think that is an area that most of us need to give real consideration in our lives. Because we live in an abundant land. Many of us have more than we essentially need. And we give generously. Many give generously for which they, they should be applauded. But sometimes giving of our resources is the easiest way to give. To give of our time mm -hmm. is the hardest to give. Mm -hmm. And speaking very personally, one of my prized possessions left in my life is the time I have to myself, which continues to shrink. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore, when something comes up and I need to take a bit of that time, whatever's left, to give it away, is extremely hard for me. But Lent reminds me that is where love becomes real. That's where the tarnish comes off the gold. Mm -hmm. So for our listeners, for you, for me, when we speak of almsgiving is to give to lift someone up, we have to consider what is it that they really need for their good and consider that. The other thing we need to talk about and think about is the method by which we give it. Allow me to tell you a story. When I worked for McGraw-Hill as a sales representative, I would go to, I would take the F train to work. And at Rockefeller Center at the station there, in the old days, 
you know, in prehistoric times when I was young, <laughs> right? There was a tremendous presence of homeless people in the subways. My sense is it's slowly returning in New York. Right. But in those days, there were people actually made their homes in the subways. And there was one gentleman who was homeless that I, in my dutiful Christian almsgiving, always gave this man a dollar a day. And I was very proud of myself. 23 years old, I had it all set up. I was doing what I was supposed to do. Until Pope Francis came, many years later, and has given me tremendous pause to reflect on what I was actually doing. Because if you could picture it in your mind, there I am in my suit, my briefcase, my you know expensive shoes, doing my thing, walking through the tunnel, and handing a dollar bill down to someone who was literally on the floor. Mm. And what was going on there, in all honesty, was I, a have, was giving to someone who was have not. Right. Pope Francis comes along and says, everyone should smell, particularly religious leaders, should smell the scent of their sheep. Well, how do you do that? Well, the only way I can think of where you can do that effectively is picture a different scenario where almost as a parable, you don't necessarily just hand the dollar in that gesture of almost authority or overlording someone, right? but you actually get on your knees and you put your hands under them to lift them up, whatever that may mean. Because in that very act, you are almost becoming heart to heart. Mm. And when you do that, you take on the scent. But what the real implication is, is that we're all have-nots. We are all have-nots. Someone may be a have-not in material goods, and you could be a have-not in spiritual goods, or in your own self-righteousness, or your own sense of importance. That almsgiving is not just an act of generosity, but it's an act of self-awareness. That when we give to the poor, do we not also recognize that we're poor in whatever way, shape, or form that may be? And that they're giving us an occasion to cleanse our own hearts? That they have a gift to give to us as much as we have a gift to give to them? And so therefore you see almsgiving in a totally different way. It's not just charity. For us, it's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity for conversion. And again, it should be part of every Christian's life more than just Lent, but Lent we do it in a concentrated way so that we can give reflection as to what really is going on here. Yes. Does that make sense? It does. It does make sense. And it's a whole different way of imagining what the Lord is asking of us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had in mind coming into this to today, I had in mind just the you know the the widow in Luke's gospel with the two coins, which is <clears throat> sacrificial and important. You have in mind, and now I have in mind Mother Teresa. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. To do small things with great love. Yes. So that dollar bill to give to someone who may be poor if it's done with great love for their own good to come in some way, shape, or form to enter into their life, it's true almsgiving. Yes. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to do. We have a lot to do as Christians. Yeah. Right? 
It's not easy. No. But what student is greater than his teacher? So Jesus lived as an itinerant preacher for three years, not knowing where he was going to lay his head. Perhaps all along the way, seeking or even begging for food for his apostles. Allowing them to glimpse his, his power, and yet open to allow them to, Lord, could we have the highest seats in the kingdom? And yet, we are on the same path to empty ourselves and to walk in that path that the Lord gave us of self-sacrifice and willing someone's good and hungering for the Lord like he did in the desert. Our path is not to be any different. Yeah. Yeah. You look at the, the greatest heroes outside of Jesus in the church, and it's people like St. Francis of Assisi mm -hmm. and Mother Teresa. People and St. Paul. Yeah. Right. I mean, exactly. when he went to that litany of all the sufferings. Yes. Uh, you go through the list, honestly, you have to ask yourself, well, where would I have stopped? Where would I have said enough is enough? You know, how many times should I be shipwrecked or stoned or thrown out of a window or have to escape or, or, or beaten with a rod? Where would you or I or our listeners have said, okay, I'm done. Okay, the third beating, that's it. <laughs> but Paul kept going. Yeah. Right? And then we could say to ourselves, we could appease ourselves, you know, and say, oh, well, he was special. No, no, no. That is the wrong attitude. He achieved the level of greatness because he emptied himself with the grace of God to, to, to sustain him. So who's to say what you and I are capable of with the grace of Christ? Yeah. We can't excuse ourselves to mediocrity. Never are we to do that. Wow. So much to think about. <laughs> um, let's, let's break there. And uh, when we come back, we'll shift gears a little bit. We'll talk about coronavirus yes. and Catholic Relief Services. Great. A lot of people listen to Catholic Radio and get great information to help build their faith and support their faith. But there are also people out there who haven't yet built a relationship with God, and Catholic Radio reaches them wherever they are. It evangelizes in a way like no other medium, and that's just one of the many reasons why Catholic Radio is so important. Hey all, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank. Let's, um, Everywhere in the news, for good reason, people are talking about coronavirus. You recently issued some guidelines for mm -hmm. the Diocese of Bridgeport. Mm -hmm. Where do we stand? Yes. Well, first of all, I think we need to recognize that this is a very serious medical challenge. There are two facts that I just learned recently that are very compelling. First, is that the coronavirus is 10 times more communicable than influenza. The second is that at its mortality rate, when you compare that the mortality rate of influenza, I am told, is one-tenth of 1% 1 of the total population infected. If you look at a mortality rate of anywhere between two and a half or higher, it poses a major health risk. And because it is so easily communicated, one person to another, when you think of the metropolitan area of New York, when you think of that poor gentleman who contracted the virus and went to work unbeknownst to him, 
and now his family is infected. When you think of recently, I heard this morning, in Westchester, a doctor had contracted it, so all his patients may be at risk. Think of all of our students who are overseas coming back home. I think of Italy and my, my relatives in Italy. Yeah, mine in South Korea. Exactly, right. This is very serious. However, the last thing we need to do is panic. Because if we panic, we become unreasonable. And when we become unreasonable, we do not do the things we need to do prudently to protect ourselves, those whom we love, and the greater good. So part of what I have tried to do with uh, the people that I rely on here at the Chancery is to try to have a proportionate response to what is on the ground as we speak. Now, up to this point, there is no case I'm aware of that has been documented in Connecticut. However, we must fully expect that eventually they will come. Right. So some of the guidance that I've given to all the pastors effective immediately is that I've asked them to suspend the distribution of the cup with the sacred blood. I've also asked them to instruct individuals in the sign of peace to avoid contact or to omit the call to exchange the sign of peace so that the priest would exchange it with the people and it's implied that everyone does it amongst themselves. And I've also instructed those who are ill not to come to church because the obligation to come to mass does not extend to those who risk themselves or others and their health by doing so. It has never been the case, right? So that's nothing new. Right. But there's still a lot. I mean, my secretary, Debbie, has was inundated yesterday with calls on people who are just worried. You know, a man sneezed next to me. Should he be allowed at mass? I mean, it sounds almost silly, but if you're really anxious about it, they're not silly questions. They're coming from a place of, of fear. Yes. Right? One of the issues that the pastors have raised is the question of receiving communion on the tongue and whether or not that should in some way, shape, or form be discouraged or in some way, shape, or form forbidden. Now, there is no possibility of forbidding it because it is allowed. And that is beyond my competency. But quite frankly, the fact is that any human contact can allow the contagion to pass from person to person. So whether you receive on the tongue or receive in the hand, it is, it is an equal risk in many ways. Yes. So the real question is not the mode of receiving Holy Communion, but the reflection on the part of he or she who wishes to come up to communion, whether or not they are ill or have been reasonably exposed. Because there is, to love the greater community, to love my neighbor, are we able to voluntarily refrain from receiving Holy Communion in either way, if we feel ill, or whether or not we have been exposed to a person who shows flu-like symptoms, or the symptoms that we now understand to be likened to the coronavirus? That is something very hard for, I think, many people to hear because receiving Holy Communion has almost become routine at Mass. And we speak of the need of people to be in the state of grace, and rightfully so. 
I believe it was St. Cyril of Alexandria who reminded his congregation to receive the bread of life in the state of grave sin is to receive the bread of death for it will bring condemnation simply because we ourselves have not received it in the proper state of life. That's judgment we inherit, not that God imposes on us. We accept it on our own. So the church has always taught if you're in the state of mortal sin or serious sin, you should not come to communion until you have gone to the sacrament of penance and reconciliation. And that remains true. This is a different type of sacrifice though. So if I, for example, have been exposed to someone who has every symptom of the flu, and I do not have the moral certitude that they are not in fact carrying the coronavirus, apart from myself being possibly infected, not knowing that either way, certainly come to mass. But should I come forward to receive Holy Communion in either way, if I have been exposed and could conceivably on some level have been exposed to the coronavirus. Even without exhibiting any symptoms. Correct. Right. That is an act of tremendous charity, self-sacrificial charity, that some people may choose to do and others may not choose to do. But I offer it for everyone's reflection because I think that provides the level of protection in either way of receiving, which both can communicate the virus, that a person has to reflect and say, for you, Lord, I will spiritually have communion with you, but not Eucharistic communion for this time, and I offer it. And I offer this sacrifice for the repose of the souls of everyone who has died from the virus, for all those who are now in hospital beds and nursing homes in isolation and frightened to death of what's going to happen to them. I offer it for them yes. and for their healing. And I offer it for all those who are going through anxiety and fear or in self-isolation because of possible contamination. I offer it for all of them and for their intentions. It is a great sacrifice, but it can have tremendous spiritual benefit. So that I think is uh, what I would like to offer as the next level of instruction, um, depending on how the circumstances continue to develop in Connecticut. Yeah. I mean, we here in the United States, we're accustomed, as you said, to receiving every week, almost without, almost without even thinking about it. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like that in, in other cultures. And there is real value to a spiritual communion. It's not the same as receiving the actual no. body and blood, but no. there is value as no. you're saying. But let's go back to fasting. So if I, in charity, consider not receiving Holy Communion in either way, because I have been exposed to someone who has flu-like symptoms, that is a fast that is self-sacrificial. But will it not in the end deepen my hunger for the Eucharistic Lord? Mm. Will it not allow me to appreciate the value of the greatest, one of the greatest gifts we receive from Christ when I can come forward to receive it? Mm -hmm. You know, tradition holds that Francis of Assisi received Holy Communion very rarely. Some traditions hold he received it three times in his whole life because he did not believe himself worthy to receive so great a gift. My friends, let's reflect on that just a bit. 
perhaps one of the individuals in the entire history of the church that tried to mirror a persona Christi in the world, did not believe himself to be worthy, is a very sobering recognition. Now, I'm not suggesting we not receive. What I am suggesting is, in these unique sets of circumstances, perhaps this may be something where a person may consider refraining voluntarily for out of love for his or her neighbor. Yes. Mm-hmm. I never imagined, to be honest, when this began to be unfold in China, that it could become a pandemic. But I believe that is ultimately what is happening in our midst. Yeah. And there are probably, as you said, we haven't seen any cases as of yet here in Connecticut, but I can't imagine that there yes. aren't. Of course. They're it, just non-symptomatic at this moment. Of course. Of course. Yeah. And the other sobering fact I read was the one gentleman in Italy that was the focal point of the cluster of infections was asymptomatic for 27 days. Wow. Not 14 days. And if that is true, then that takes on a whole nother level of uncertainty because even the 14-day quarantine may not be enough. Yeah. So this is the moment where we look to the Lord and ask for the grace, the wisdom, the clarity, the courage, the self-sacrifice to be able to do the best we can in something which is, you know, a serious, serious medical threat. Yeah, I'm... I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you're uh, asking all of us here in the diocese to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to look at if you have any thoughts on, um, you know, for thousands of years, as you touched on, the world has seen plagues and pandemics. Uh, what, what can the church offer people in times like this? You know, what is the role of the church in times like this? Mm-hmm. I think the church can call people to true self-reflection and examine their reaction to what is going on as a moment of self-clarity and perhaps a need for repentance. So for example, I have heard a number of commentators try to gain solace out of the fact that only those who are elderly, only those who have compromised immunity, only those who are already sick are at the gravest threat. So we shouldn't panic. Now, that may be a fact, but the attitude underlying that is what troubles me because in an unspoken way, what's almost being communicated is, well, some lives may be at risk, but not all lives. Right. Almost implying that they're not of equal value. Yes. That if you happen to be elderly or with a compromised immune system, that in some way, shape, or form, if in fact you're at risk, it's not of equal value than those of us who may be younger or healthier. That says something about the sacredness of life that troubles me a lot. Because we as Catholic Christians believe every life is sacred. Every life is irrepeatable. Every life has dignity that God gives. Every life needs to be cared for. So whether they intend it or not, it's a moment of self-reflection. Like, what do you, so what do you really mean by saying that? 
you may be trying to give me consolation, but you're purporting a principle that, that as a Christian, I need to object to. Because no life is disposable. From conceived in the womb to a moment of natural death, every life needs to be protected to the extent that we can. So that's what I mean by self-reflection, or even with the discussion we just had. If my hesitancy is that I will not voluntarily forego receiving Holy Communion out of an act of goodness and love for my neighbor, even though I have been exposed to someone who clearly has flu-like symptoms, then what's motivating that decision on my part? Right, yeah. So every opportunity, even moments of great crisis, we have an opportunity to put a mirror to our souls and learn about ourselves so that we can move this, move ourselves forward in the life of holiness and repentance. That would be one basic piece to this puzzle. Yeah. Feels like the coronavirus uh, taking shape during Lent, you're talking about the prayer, the reflection, the fasting, right? This um, possibly, you know, reflecting to see if you should go up to receive mm -hmm. communion at this moment and then almsgiving with the service. And I guess I'm kind of leading into um, Catholic relief services mm -hmm. because I, I don't know a lot about them, but I know that they're a huge humanitarian organization. Mm -hmm. And congratulations, by the way, on being elected as chairman Thank of the you. board. Thank you. Maybe, can you, can you paint a more complete picture of what Catholic relief services does? Mm -hmm. Catholic Relief Services is the humanitarian arm of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops in addressing the needs of the poor and the, and the needy throughout the world. It originated in the early 1940s when the Catholic bishops decided they wanted to attend to the needs of those who were displaced or made poor or made homeless through Second World War. And coming out of the war to address the needs of millions of people who were facing very adverse situations. I mean, most of Europe was just decimated. Yes. And it evolved into a global agency that, if my memory serves me correctly, serves in 100 plus countries with a staff of nearly 6,800 people. And it is our outreach in charity to lift people up and help them to live a better, healthier, whole, more whole life in Christ. And we do it, Catholic Relief Services, at the invitation of the local churches around the world. So we don't take it upon ourselves to go in where we're not invited because we cannot do this work without partnerships. So we always partner with local agencies and local churches and local dioceses to affect this aid. But its operational budget is almost a billion dollars a year, which is a tremendous amount of resources and aid. And everyone knows why we do what we do and, and the parameters out of which we operate in CRS. So to give you a vignette of the cost of charity, three weeks ago, Abuna Simon, 
was part of a caravan in the South Sudan, and they were ambushed. They were on their way to create a large tent as a holding area for food and supplies before the rainy season set in. And they were ambushed precisely for the supplies that they had. Mm. Three escaped. He was brutally murdered. Now, his brother had been murdered two years prior in the same work of relief of the poor. Between them, there are now 11 children for Abu Simon was caring for his brother's children and his own, obviously. Mm-hmm. Now we have 11 children without a father and a widow in a country of tremendous economic challenge. So he offered his life in charity for those who are poor. No different than a young man, Jean, in Haiti last week, who also was ambushed and murdered on his way to provide provisions. Real life martyrs at the cutting edge of where the poorest of the poor live, because not everyone in the world wants to help the poorest of the poor. What they want is gain from that which would help them Mm -hmm. for either their own personal needs, perhaps out of desperation, or probably for trafficking and for profit. So, Catholic Relief Services is relatively unknown among Catholic Americans. Part of my hope is to educate them on what is done, the challenges behind them, the challenges of having partners throughout the world. And some of those partners are not necessarily Catholic, but they serve in our greater mission. And there are lots of religious challenges that go with that, that oftentimes you hear in social media. But it doesn't deter the, the leadership of Catholic Relief Services and the bishops from going out into the world mm-hmm. to make this mission its faith, actions, and results. Right? That's the, the tagline that often animates what Catholic Relief Services does. Yeah. Now, I have a lot to learn. I, I was never on the board. So I was appointed on the board in November, and then Archbishop Gomez asked me to chair the board. So I really have a lot of work to do and learning much more of the details. Sure. But I'm very happy that I could be of some help because I think it's a worthy, worthy um, cause. Yeah. And uh, with regards to the awareness of CRS in the United States, um, do, you, do you know if CRS is actively doing things here or is it mostly in developing nations? No, it's most of it is in developing nations, okay. but my understanding is if the need occurs, if there's a crisis, if there's, then Catholic Relief Services will also be of help in the United States as well. Okay. Right. But remember, we have our Catholic Charities infrastructure yes. in the diocese to be of help domestically. Right. But if there's a crisis, yes, absolutely. Catastrophe, yeah, I would think so. Absolutely, yeah. internally as well. Yeah, on, on our Ash Wednesday show, you said something that really struck me. You said that poverty has a name. Mm. When these issues, poverty, starvation, when they're given a face, then you can connect with the fact that we're all called to help our brothers and sisters in need. Absolutely. You see, because um, we can become very theoretical and by becoming theoretical, create a distance between the challenge and myself. So poverty sounds something as if it's uh, an operational, economic, social problem to be solved. 
Well, on some level, perhaps it is. But the poor people that you meet have concrete lives. Yes. They have concrete names. They have conditions, like uh, Abuna Simon now. We have 11 children who will be facing poverty unless from the outside aid is given to them. So that's not a, 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 a social ill. That's a real life, real lives. Right. And when you do put a face to it, then it's much more compelling. Yeah. And therefore for us, in our own lives, in our own neighborhoods, there is plenty of need, plenty of individuals who are in need, who have real names that we need to get to learn and attend to. Yeah. Is there a way that we can get involved with CRS uh, or, or is the best outlet going through something like Catholic Charities? Well, I think to do both, okay. of course. I ask for a lot, to do both. I think Catholic Charities has tremendous need. Here in Fairfield County, Steve, you know, that the largest provider of mental health services for young people is Catholic Charities. Just the food kitchens that Catholic Charities operate. So we need desperately help there, help yeah. in time, participation, resources. And in Catholic Relief Services, it's the global needs, which do dwarf the domestic need when you just see of the magnitude and scale. So the rice bowl operations that we have and the ability to give money may seem inconsequential, but when you consider 70 plus million Catholics, you can raise significant money mm. that is needed. When you identify a face, then once you identify a face, that person has concrete needs that we need to reach out to. The other piece to CRS, which I find intriguing and has captured my imagination, is the desire to scale change. So, you know, the old adage, give a man a fish and he will come back for more, teach him how to fish and he'll be self-sufficient. Right. A lot of what Catholic uh, Relief Services does now is scales societal change. Sustainable farming, for example. Micro-lending is another example. Mm. To allow people the ability to carve a life that's sustainable with dignity so that they can become self-sufficient and then perhaps be of aid to others to yes. make real societal change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the key. That's definitely the key. And we take a lot of that for granted in the United States. It's handed to us. And that, I must confess, really saddens me. My dad used to say, if you haven't suffered for it, do you actually appreciate it, whatever the it is? Now, my parents came, you know, <laughs> I remember... My father used to tell the story of growing up in Italy and I would sit there and say to myself, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like the Abraham Lincoln stories, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, until I went as a little boy, even when I was older, and saw the, the house my father lived in, which had no bathroom, right? And whatever they considered to be the bathroom in the outhouse was really minimal. Let's leave it at that. Mm -hmm. I grew up taking that for granted, as most Americans do. Yeah. So, there. So I wonder to myself: Is that a sense of entitlement that kind of creeps into everything we have, particularly as Americans? And I'm speaking for myself. Mm -hmm. You take it for granted that you you have a car and that you have food and that you have a house and that you can air condition it and you can heat it. 
uh, when there are millions, tens, hundreds of millions of people who do not know if they will eat today? Are they less human than we are? Do they have less dignity than we are? Are they less loved by God than we are? The answer to that is no, no, no. Right. So is it not our obligation to sensitize ourselves to that and be of resource to that? Will we not stand shoulder to shoulder in heaven? And when we do, what will we say to them? More to think about in Lent. Yeah. So much to reflect on. This is today's very rich episode. Let, let, me, let me just quickly, we need to take a break. Yes. And then when we come back, we'll hit some listener questions. Absolutely. Okay. Catholic Radio is absolutely necessary because the secular press just doesn't get our story. It's not that they're necessarily hostile to it. They aren't even that far along. They don't even understand it. They don't get it. And so it's incumbent upon us in Catholic Radio to do the story better, to get the story straight and get the story out. Catholic Radio is absolutely necessary. The secular press just doesn't get our story. Welcome back. Okay, Your Excellency, I have some questions here from listeners. Let's start with Monica from St. Stephen Parish in Trumbull. By the way, that's a fantastic saint to be named after. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So she would like to know, what is the single most effective way we can support Catholic education at the high school level in Fairfield County? Well, secondary Catholic education is under tremendous duress for a lot of reasons, because of the demographic shifts in our county, because of the price point as that education becomes more expensive and it becomes more and more out of reach of many families. And therefore, that is going to be something we have to look at systemically throughout the county, throughout the diocese. We have not raised on a diocesan level money that can be given directly as tuition assistance on the high school level because we are struggling to do it on the elementary school level where the need is equal, if not more acute, and the price point is even less expensive. It's something that we need to address. But my thought would be this. One of the things I I am in my own mind, want to make as a hallmark of our strategic planning with the high schools is to make them clearly, unambiguously, authentically Catholic in every respect. Yes. Because if a parent is going to make this huge sacrifice financially, precisely because it's a Catholic school, not because it's a private school, because it's a Catholic school, then we have to be able to deliver that in an unambiguous way. And many of our high schools do do a very good job, but it doesn't mean that we can't do more. And we're beginning to look at steps to be able to do that so that those who are really going to make that sacrifice have the assurance, if they're coming for a Catholic education, that they will have a truly Catholic education and formational experience. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. That's the key. I mean, especially in an area like this where the public schools and and there are private schools that are excellent, that's... That's why we're That's what distinguishes who we are. Definitely. Okay. John wrote in to ask, our discourse, particularly on social media and especially within our church, has gotten so angry and volatile lately. Mm -hmm. How can we bring people together and bring charity and good intentions back into our dialogue? It's, It's perhaps a simplistic way of answering a very difficult question. 
I think we are spending too much time looking at each other and not looking at the Lord Jesus. Christian life is not about compromising between you and I. It's about finding commonality. And the commonality comes from Christ and my relationship with him. Because I am connected to the Lord and received divine adopted sonship in him, that means you're my brother. And that means that we have more in common than we oftentimes understand. And in a world that wants to divide us by emphasizing only what's different between us, and social media gives you the platform to do it even anonymously, Mm -hmm. it's our obligation to look at the Lord first and discover that which is common among us, which is more than meets the eye, so that we can deal with the differences in a civil way, a respectful way, charitable way, not what is going on now. And I have to say, some of the social media, even and, and the websites affiliated with the church in some way, some of them are very disconcerting, precisely because they do not do that. Yeah. The only obligation we have is my reaction to it. So everybody listening, you're either gonna listen to it and support it or walk away from it. That's at least my initial stance. Then we can create this dialogue in my spiritual life. But if you're watching it listen, and participating and all the while disapproving of it, well, you can't have it both ways, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I stopped reading a couple of websites that I agree with their point of view, but the, the tone was too angry. Yes, so. exactly so. I would find myself getting angry. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we want to hear from all of you. Send your comments or questions for Bishop Frank on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. All right. That'll do it. I'm having so much fun with these shows. Bishop oh, I enjoy Frank. our conversation, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Let Me Be Frank is sponsored by the Knights of Columbus Museum, where your family will enjoy a journey through history, art, and faith. Visit KOFC Museum on the web or social media. I hope many of our listeners can make it to the free presentation on Pasanki this Sunday at 2 o'clock. And look for the Let Me Be Frank podcast out later today. Bishop Frank Caggiano is also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And while you're there, look up Veritas Catholic Network, too. Your Excellency. Would you please give us your blessing? Certainly. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he shine his face upon you and be merciful to you. May the Lord in his goodness grant you his peace. And may he bless you in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. See you next week, Steve. Okay.